<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hi, everybody. You are listening to On a Mother Level. This is episode 71, and I'm your host, Denise Hanitka. So glad you are here for another episode. This week was International Women's Week, and this is the perfect conversation to have. So, my guest today is Jennifer V. She's the mom of three living in Bettendorf. And I first found her because the yoga studio that she works at posted this huge paragraph about her specializations in yoga and how she's worked with children and families and specializes in yoga for trauma and PTSD. And I thought what a fascinating conversation to have right now, especially as we're in a pandemic. And Yoga is one of those things that always feels like something I should be able to do, that I should be able to quiet my mind for an hour and focus on that mind-body connection and breathing. And it's something I've never been able to really master, even though I've put like, like a little tiny, tiny bit of work into it, like none at all. Anyway, whatever. So I thought, how cool, I'm going to talk to Jennifer. So I wrote out this huge page of notes of all the yoga stuff I wanted to talk to her about. And the conversation started, and Jennifer, I hope you don't mind that um, I I explain it this way. (laughs) So Jennifer is my very first guest who never sat down for nearly the entire interview. She was on her phone, on Zoom with me, and occasionally during the conversation, she would just have to like get up and walk around and close doors and sit on a couch, then sit on a bed and change rooms and... It was fascinating watching her mind work through this conversation that went all the places that I had never imagined that it would go. And it turns out she's done some fascinating work with women's studies and done some research on infertility. And I know a lot of you moms listening to this podcast have experienced IVF, had had IVF to have your children. And Jennifer has some opinions on IVF and about the way infertility is treated in this country. And I thought about taking it out because I thought maybe some people might be offended by the things that she said. But then I realized that taking something out because it might be controversial is not what I stand for. And the fact that I even considered taking it out makes me mad because that's not who I am. And I do not like that the world is turning into a silencing of viewpoints that we do not, um, that we do not like. And so I just want to warn you that it might be a little triggering to hear um, what she says about infertility, but I just want you to keep an open mind to why she's saying it and the role that it's played in her life and the life of people she loves. I don't mean to make it sound scarier than it is, but it's weird how I feel like opinions are not okay to have suddenly out of nowhere. You feel me, right? Okay. So Jennifer um, is an extremely uh, interesting and intriguing conversation, and I really hope that you will enjoy it and keep an open mind to this conversation because here's the bottom line of what it was, you guys. This was two women who know nothing about each other, okay? And yet we sat on Zoom for an hour plus and broke down our views of the world, our views of ourselves, um, the mistakes that we've made and the decisions that we've made. And when we're talking about International Women's Week and International Women's Day, isn't that what we're celebrating? We're celebrating two women with different viewpoints and different life experiences coming together over the shared experience that is motherhood. So that's why I appreciate you this week, Jennifer. And I'm so happy to share this conversation with you all. Please go to my Instagram at on a mother level and give it a follow. 
My personal Instagram is at Denise WQAD. Would love to interact with you more on there. Don't forget our Bachelor recaps are also available along with this episode. They are separate standalone content so that you can find it separately and not have to scroll through episodes. So please give those a click as well. This podcast is growing and it is blowing my mind, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for the support. Now, please welcome Jennifer. So my record is um, 17 hot yoga classes in one week and some weeks I teach one or two. It just depends. And it's interesting because with the pandemic, what I kind of lost was honestly like where my heart really is with all the yoga and stuff. Um, I've had a contract with LeClaire Public Library. I know it sounds like, okay, small town, whatever, but um, we've been doing these like twice a week yoga classes for all ages, all ages. If you want to bring your child, you come. So I have anywhere from like eight to 88 year olds in this class. So like I've literally had small children and the elderly with limited mobility, but for whatever reason, this class was for eight consecutive months selling out or selling out. I mean, they paid $2 to sign up. It was like, you know, funded by the friends of the LeClaire library, but it was twice a week and we had a strong group and we were looking at adding more classes. And like, to me, where I come from, like, that's the way yoga should be done. Like everybody where they're at, it shouldn't have to be something you hire a babysitter for, or yoga doesn't replace fitness. In my opinion, either yoga replaces TV watching. Who would you um, watch TV with? Oh, okay. Go to yoga instead. Like your kids, your parents, right? Like, yeah. And so we did, we just had this like beautiful, consistent group of people who were always showing up. And like, so we had to stop for a while. And then one of the restaurants in LeClaire let us do it in their, like on their yard in the summer. And we did it through the summer until like the bees and the sun and the heat took over. But now like, it's just sad because we all want to be doing it, but like, (laughs) and doing it over Zoom wouldn't do it any justice. So I'm not. No. And you could argue that we need yoga and stillness now more than ever. It's like the worst time to eliminate that from people's lives. Yeah. Right. Simultaneously, when traumatic stress is present, when there's trauma in the body and I'm, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not qualified to like tell you what trauma would mean to someone, but just as somebody who's very interested in the body, there seems to be this like neurological and physiological component to trauma that's very, very real. And so I would argue that pretty much everyone is carrying a certain degree of traumatic stress right now. And so one of the interesting things about like trauma-informed contemplative practices is, is that we acknowledge that silence is very triggering to the people with neurological and physiological symptoms of stress and like I've got to be honest, like <laughs> I tell my kids all the time, like, sometimes I'm an example. Sometimes I'm a warning. Like this is one of those things. Like I have in the last year, I have struggled to meditate more than in my whole life. There are just some times where the stillness is so agitating that it's almost more nourishing to me to dissociate and like watch Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers, <laughs> like things just that just sort of like make me giggle and like, I don't know that that's like helping me or anything. (laughs) It's like, Hey, this is all very real. We're all trying to figure this out right now. And so, yeah, I think we do need this. Um, but there's a good chance that it's too agitating for right now. And it might be better suited for our like healing and recovery process moving forward. Well, I'm feeling very validated right now because I find myself listening to some form of podcast all day long because I cannot stand the silence and the thoughts that come into my own head. You know what I mean? And I don't mean mean to make myself sound like a psycho, but you know, it's like, I just, I don't say it, right? You feel like a psycho if you say it, but we're all like, (laughs) no, we have that time. We all have it. Can we just like call it what it is? I mean, my friends, my dear friends at the Holistic Life Foundation, they have this incredible podcast and they actually did a whole podcast about that because they're like, yeah, no, just so everybody knows that's the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll have to send you a link to it because it is. It's just so validating that like it doesn't mean you're schizo. It doesn't mean you're hearing voices. And 
Okay. Again, I am not an expert, but I'm a very fortunate woman. I'm 40 years old and I have a big sister who is a Harvard trained psychiatrist. Okay. So when I feel like I'm going off the rails, (laughs) I literally have someone who's like (laughs) so close to me, who's been close to me my whole life. And I can be like, yo, Kelly. (laughs) Well, now you have me curious because I think you told me that you grew up with five sisters. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I have five sisters and two brothers. Okay. Um, Holy wow. Um, (laughs) A huge family. How fantastic. Yes. Um, But, but I'm interested in this because, you know, five sisters and at least two that I know of now that are interested in the mind and how it works. And, you know, you and your sister are covering it in two different ways. We're the only two single moms in our family. Okay. (laughs) So I tell her, I'm like, Kelly, we need to make a brand. Like people should listen to us because my parents, when they, my parents are young, they are so cute. They had us when they were 19 years old and they're still married and blah, blah, blah. And my parents a couple of years ago, like had a couple of things around them happen and they were like, okay, we better get our affairs in order and so I mean they have eight children it's not easy it's not like it's hard to divide affairs amongst eight people and thank god it's amongst eight people compared to like one (laughs) anyway my parents were real it's so interesting it's fascinating to me they were so wise they delegated all the financial stuff to my other siblings but they made my sister and I both medical powers of attorney interesting why do you think that is Yeah, they told us, they said, it's because we know that between the two of you, you'll ask all the right questions. And honestly, there's a part of me that thinks like, I'm actually like the black sheep of the family. So maybe they just gave me that role to like appease me. They're like, oh, Kelly, please just make the decisions. (laughs) They know I come from a good place and that I'll ask the right questions. So tell me more about your family. So you yourself have three daughters. Yes. What are their ages? Okay. So Bella is 16. She's turning 17 in May and she's a junior in high school. And she, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling facts. Okay. She's like, if there's such a thing as a soulmate, like Bella is my soulmate. Okay. I love all of my children equally and differently and beautifully. Don't get me wrong. But like Bella, like she just, came along. Bella is, they're all special in their own ways and I'll gush, but like Bella, Bella has like a 4.2 or 4.3 GPA. She's a section leader of um, the drum line at her high school. So she's this like short little girl who grew into leadership at a young age in her mostly male dominated section of the band. You know, the women's studies major in me loves that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) she she's a barista at Starbucks and she loves her job and because of the pandemic and everything I'm looking at this kid she's been able to like sustain really like amazing benefits and employment and like this kid's gonna like graduate from high school with fifty thousand dollars in the bank because she just like (laughs) took it. She's essential. You know, she's, she's been an essential worker. She's been feeling this. And I really resisted her like getting a job for a long time. And then after her little league season was canceled last year because of the pandemic, she just came to me and she's like, mom, like, that's the worst thing that could have happened to me. Can I please go get a job? I was like, yeah, honey, you can go get a job. Like, you're right. That does suck that you're, she's an all-star pitcher. Like her little league season got taken away from her. Like, oh, she challenges me in all the ways that an oldest child does. I've always like, as the women's studies major, I've always been like, no, you don't date until you're 16. Like, you need to focus on your friendships and your girlfriends until that age. You need to be more neurologically developed before you even try. Like going out is bullshit. Like, <laughs> sorry, am I? <laughs> you're fine. You're hundred percent fine. Okay. Oh, but then of course, like back in the day, I worked with this wonderful woman who's in like hospital administration and she has this perfect family. And of course it was her son who stood up on a cafeteria table, like Heath Ledger style in eighth grade and sang a birthday song to my daughter, wooed her for six months before finally I was like, all right, you can't control the wind. (laughs) At least he's a good kid. He's on the football team. He's the star of all the musicals. I know he comes from a good family like what are, what am I doing what do I like why what am I doing? 
What I, I love that you've pulled out my... 10 things I hate about you. <laughs> oh, totally. That was just the most perfect reference. And well, and that's my generation, right? Like, I didn't mean, okay, so why I say Bella's my soulmate too. And like, she came at just the right time. I didn't mean to become a mother at such a young age. I, I was 23 when I had Bella. I was married. And that was kind of it. We're like, oh, at least we're married. <laughs> like, <laughs> that'd be scandalous. <laughs> But yeah, so when I had Bella Young, I was like, oh no, I don't want her to, I don't want this beautiful, sweet little baby to suffer because she has a young mom. <laughs> like, and I know the statistics, <laughs> you know. Um, and then there's Cece. Cece is 15 and she is like the psychic child, the manifester. She didn't sleep through the night for two and a half years. She's amazing too. And I think it's, it's important to just like speak honestly about this. Um, Cece had a twin in utero. And I think we hear more and more about these stories of like, you know, the twin that doesn't make it and whatever else. And so Cece's nickname is Super C. And she's always like, she's always told us that her little sister is her twin. So I also have a 10 year old who's about to turn 11. But yeah, no, Cece's whatever. She's also like, she's on like a gifted and talented program. She has well above a 4.0. She is a very gifted musician. She plays like seven different instruments and gets the lead in all the plays and has a beautiful singing voice and just has more courage and fire. And like, she knows this. So it's not bad for me to say this because we've had it on like at home, this kid could not be less helpful. Okay. Like <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like really, really super dramatic. <laughs> No, it's like a problem. It's like, I don't know. I just want to be honest. Like you could, I do. I admire the hell out of my kids and they're so wonderful. And she's also like a star softball player and a pitcher and everything. And like, I so appreciate her diverse talents. And for as much as I can brag about them, I also feel like this is a real problem. guys. <laughs> so this is our problem with Cece at home. Yeah. Cece doesn't do anything. Cece doesn't want to do <laughs> And her sisters pick up the slack and they feel it. Yeah. No, Bella, Bella's thing is like, she's just exhausting because she wants to be a lawyer. So the way she can like annoyingly articulate her way through an argument is it's alarming. So oh, anyway, then there's to have, that's exactly oh, the skill I would want a daughter to have. I know. And you don't want to stifle it out of them or anything, but sometimes it's also like, Girl, do you know all the mediocre white dudes I just went to work with today, followed by the nonsense I had to deal with at the bank? And now you think I'm so like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like. Um, but yeah, Livy, Livy's about to turn 11 and uh, like she's my baby. So her sisters are 19 months apart really close in age. And then like five years later came Livy. <laughs> so... Yeah, she's, uh, she was born like a little spitfire. I mean, I could just tell you like stories and stories, but she's also very smart and she's like the tall, skinny athlete of the bunch. So she, and she just, oh, she has some fire in her. Like it was going into first grade or second grade, one of those summers. She like literally almost had to leave a softball game because she mouthed off to her first base coach who sent her to second and she didn't think he should have. <laughs> she got tagged out. <laughs> like, but she's also a sweetheart. Like she specializes in pedicures and massages and like, well, yeah. So these, these kids, this is, this is how they are. This is who they are. Right. I adore the way you talk about your children. The way that you know their minds and hearts and um, all of their best qualities come forward, even when they're, even when they have some bad qualities, it's like you describe them in such lovable ways. Well, they are lovable and like, be honest, like I am not someone who agrees with giving a trophy to every child and like, I will brag about my kids until I'm blue in the face, but I will also, <laughs> I will just tell you how it is. <laughs> Well, I'll be honest, my, that makes for a great podcast guest. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Well, my Libby, my youngest one, honestly, her dad and I were still married when she was two and we dressed her up as animal from the Muppets for Halloween because like <laughs> that was her personality. <laughs> and she did. She made the perfect animal. 
gold chains and everything. It was pretty great. <laughs> yes. Like we had them young. And I mean, I was 29 when I had my youngest daughter and um, we've, we've been divorced for over five years. We haven't lived together in seven years more than that. God. And like, we co-parent very well. We both had to eat a lot of shit to get there, but we do. And when it comes to the kids, like, okay. And, and I think he would agree and kind of giggle. Like we're not friends, you know, like, I don't know his personal business. He doesn't know mine. We don't share feelings. That's not it. But when it comes to the really important stuff about like parenting values, I so appreciate that we're always aligned. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. No, we're not afraid of the tough conversations. And I feel like where we always get to is best for the kids. And so I think that like, that's something I'm super passionate about is telling people to just sort of like, <laughs> check their egos. Like you brought these kids into this world, you have a responsibility, work out your feelings with your friends. Mm -hmm. Don't try to work out your feelings with your ex-husband. <laughs> if that was going to work, you would have stayed married. <laughs> Don't work out your feelings through your kids. That's not appropriate. So yeah, and it's doable. And he's, um, he's engaged now. And like, obviously being a yogi and sort of a spiritual person, like I can tell you, like this woman was absolutely destined to be in all of our lives. Like really? Oh yeah. Without question. Like she just fit and she's great and she's not perfect and neither am I. And I've been in a situation before where someone was sort of like a Cruella to me and I just, I could never do that to another woman. And so I've just always felt like my daughters have everything to gain by me being supportive of this woman. And I have felt that in return from her a thousand fold, like, you know, you teach people how to treat you. And she and I, I think, have done a very beautiful job of teaching each other how to treat each other. And it would never be appropriate for her and I to have like an in-depth conversation about her fiance. Like that's not that's not our role in each other's lives. And so what we do is we put all of that energy into like, how are we really going to show up for these kiddos? And she has a son who she adopted when he was a baby and he is um, in junior high now. And I've never had a son. And I just feel like so grateful to have this young man in my life. And what, like, am I going to be a jerk to him? He's a kid. No, like <laughs> this is a boy who my daughters spend 50% of their time with. Like, right. why wouldn't I want to show up for him? So I do, I go to his football games, his baseball, like we're a family. We're a family. I like that. That's a great attitude to have. Well, is there any other way? Doesn't the saying go like, if you like revenge or whatever, it's like drinking poison, expecting someone else to suffer. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, it's awesome because I can play it cool with my ex-husband, even though we're 50, 50 on paper, I get to see my kids like 80% of the time because we both share time and yeah go to each other's houses and like, you know, there's a certain level of trust there. Again, it's not invasive. It's not inappropriate. It's just like, all right, how do we make sure the kids always win? Yeah. And they'll, they'll know that, you know, especially 10, 20 years from now, they'll really remember that <laughs> and know that. Don't you think like they're going to be adults a lot longer than their children? Right. So, <laughs> oh, congratulations. You manipulated a 12 year old and now she hates you. <laughs> right. Like who wins from that? <laughs> I'm sure you're like me in the sense that you think a lot about how you were parented, the pros and cons, and the way that you view the situation now versus the way that you view it then, you know, back then. And there's so many takeaways there. Yes, I want to do it this way. No, I don't want to do it this way. But you learned a lot along the way. And, and some of it you agree with now and some of it you don't. It would be funny to do like an interview at some point with him and I, because it would be funny to have someone get to the bottom of like, <laughs> you know, what's really behind our communication. But I just think like there are times we all know, we all know, and people's true nature doesn't change, right? Their behavior and their intentions can change, but their true nature doesn't change. So we all know I'm a classic overreactor. My first reaction is going to be my worst. Kids make mistakes. And so there are times where I'll be like, Tony, like you have to back me up on this. And he'll, and 
he'll be like, okay, calm down. And then of course my like guarded response is instantly like, oh, he's just be my ex-husband about this. But then, you know, you take three breaths and you realize, okay, this is just me overreacting. But the converse is super validating. Like if I start overreacting and then because he's Mr. Laid back, like, you know, whatever, Tony doesn't care. So if he starts overreacting, then I know, like, yes, we have to take action on this one. God, you're so good. How are you getting me to just like naturally open up about this? But no, now that the girls are older, and like I said, my oldest daughter has a boyfriend and I'm very much on the side of like female empowerment and your body is a sacred space when it comes to sexuality. So to me, it's literally like, let's talk about sex, baby, all the good things and the bad things. But we spent a good six years drilling on the bad things. And I have like the school districts backing me up on that. Did you know they talk to fifth graders about AIDS now? Really? Like, this is awesome. Yes. I think the best approach, like in my opinion, and my approach has been like, I want sex to be that gross, scientific, nasty disease thing that mom told me about. Because like, if they think their parents do it, they don't want to do it. If, if right. it's something mom talks about just like so openly, if I treat sex like it's no big deal, but like it's very scientific-y, we have gross anatomy textbooks in the house. Like, yes, this is sex. Sex is not something that is like appropriated on social media. We don't let our kids on social media. Even your 16-year-old? Yeah. We, um, during the quarantine last year, we... We let up slightly and we let them get Snapchat, the older two. And they know when the pandemic's older, they get rid of Snapchat. But we just feel like social media, that's something you have to be 18 to make your decision about. That's it. Like it's it's just and it's a public health issue. Um, the common denominator in teen suicides is like the role of social media in it. And so oh, it's like so scary, so huge. And my boys are little is. and it already scares the crap out of me. My children have had iPhones since first grade. Okay. <laughs> like, it's not that I'm a fuddy daddy. They needed iPhones because, like, if they had a babysitter, we wanted them to be able to call us. And we didn't have a landline. Like, who pays? I'm a millennial. Like, who pays for a landline? Not I don't mean. have a mom, but I'm also a millennial. Right? <laughs> like, and then when you're divorced and stuff, it just it keeps honest people honest if everybody has their own phone number. And their own way to say, hey, dad, I miss you. Hey, mom, I miss you. You know, whatever it is. It just, and it's like freaking $10 a month on your cell phone plan to add an extra line. Like, you know, I'm, so I'm not saying I totally agree with giving kids phones, but for us, it was just like a very practical thing. And so, yes, our children have always had iPhones. Let's face it. I mean, to me, that's like a long time to have an iPhone and like you can give them an iPhone and not give them social media. Mm-hmm. They can text their friends and call their parents and you don't need to be more permissive than that. We've got the bases covered. It doesn't, and if they have an iPhone, they can like download all the apps that their teachers communicate through and everything else. So yeah, so it's not like I'm trying to be little house on the prairie about it, but let's just be scientific about yeah. it. And to me, the science says like, my opinion on the matter doesn't matter. If you want to lower the risk of your own children committing suicide because this is a crazy world we live in. You just take away social media. Are you a text message reader? Like, do you, how deep do you go into the monitoring of the phone? Okay. Um, okay maybe you I should. Could, yeah. Maybe you don't want them to know. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, they know this. They know this. And I'm sure it sounds very contrary to what other people think and do. I had an incident with my mom in fifth grade um, where she read my diary and I had called her the B word in my diary. <laughs> but like my mom called me out on it. And I like had such a, I would just like such a visceral reaction to that, like breach of trust. I could not believe that my mom read my diary that I almost view their phones like diaries. I mean, think about that. Do you, Again, this is like my women's studies background coming in, but like, how do you expect your children to develop any sense of autonomy or agency if you're always like monitoring and critiquing their communication yeah. at some point? Like, yeah, I don't love that this is all going on right now, but they are their own human beings. And like, how humiliating 
to be a seventh grade or even 11th grade girl and have your mom read what you and your friends talk about. Like, I just think that that is such a breach of trust that was, so my approach is, (laughs) and this is where like, I'm very privileged to be able to take this, this stance. Um, my approach is yes, we have like the basic monitoring things and find my iPhone and like all the things you would need to shut it down. If I'm at work and I realize they're on a porn site, (laughs) which has never happened, but you know, like I have all the like basic structure in place. Um, but, and I make sure that they keep us up to date on their passcodes and things like that, but I don't look at anything. Um, and I'm pretty sure their dad does. So it takes the pressure off of me. <laughs> yeah. No, I had one of those moments when I was a teenager too, where um, I wrote something unkind and I ripped it up and I put it in my bathroom trash can. And yeah. I came home from school one day and all of the pieces were put back together to show to me that someone had read it. And what I wrote was unkind, like it was not nice, you know, but- But you ripped it a, up, you, you didn't send it. <laughs> and, and, and it's sort of like, no, it, it, it wasn't nice. It wasn't great. And it w- if, if I was a mom and I read it, I would have been very sad and very hurt. However, as a 16 year old, I have the right to take my little pen and write something mean and rip it up and wash my hands of it, you know? And yep. I remember her, you know, my mom- revealing that she had found it and I thought like (laughs) geez like I realized it was unkind but like mind your business thank you and I just laugh these days kids kids these days (laughs) (laughs) cringy like oh no they don't even know how many things they do that are cringy to me like I don't I don't want to know like I don't need to know like we don't have like drug and alcohol and like predator issues in our home. And, and at the same time, we have made sacrifices and choices as parents to make sure that we're here monitoring and being overbearing in their face. Do you know, like for my career, I run um, communications and marketing for a manufacturing company. And so we're considered essential. Um, I've been going into my office every day since early May. And there's a cohort of us who are there every day. Our production is still going. Um, We produce things for the government and for um, major companies that are also essential. And so we just, we can't stop. And um, I'm, I joke with my friends with little kids. Now you're included in it. Like if my kids were your kids ages, I would have developed a drinking problem this year. Like those were tough years for me. I had like little kids are so like, Oh, they, they're so cute. Thank God. But they just like suck the life out of you. You must've had some (laughs) sort of a camera situation looking over my house last night because it was a snowstorm yesterday, you know, and I was working from home and taking care of my four-year-old and two-year-old. And by the time my husband got home and I spent the whole day worrying about him driving home, you know, and I'm stressed about work and my four-year-old only talks in this voice now, you know, where everything is so ah, like, it's really, really grating. By the time my husband got home and we put the kids to bed, I said, I I'm interested in you and I'm interested in your day. However, I don't want to hear another word. I need quiet time. My brain cannot handle any more external stimulation. And like at seven 30, it was like lights out. I, I, I could not anymore yesterday. I was finished through. I go to bed at nine. My girls know I sit there and I like watch the clock and I'm like, well, and we all kind of nod. I used to be the yummy mommy who tucked everybody in at night and gave them foot rubs. And now I just like, I, for whatever reason, I'm like, okay, nine o'clock is an acceptable time for me to turn in. And, and maybe it's not always, I just turn in. I don't know how you couples have made it through the last year. I'm so grateful that I didn't like bug the shit out of anybody this year. (laughs) What a burden to carry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there by the grace of God go I yes thank God because that would that would be sad and hard if like 
you were annoyed, but you also know you were like that equal level of annoying and whatever else. And like, so I do, I like big, big respect to the couples right now, because it's hard enough to be a couple that's raising small children and holding down careers and homes. But like, yeah, you guys, you guys are the people who stay married through this are the warriors. Like you are the ones who should be leading our country, I think, because you are probably the people peacemakers. Oh well, yeah, talk about across the aisle. My god. <laughs> right? <laughs> the literal aisle. <laughs> oh. No, and and it is hard. I mean, this year has been hard and you know, it's like there's no like minutia to get into other than it's just hard because when everybody walks around with this level of anxiety and then it's raised you know, two more, three more notches, you know, it's just like, you're all, you're already not operating as your best self, you know? And, and I don't think I've operated <laughs> as my best self in approximately 400 days. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that like, I hear something like that come out of someone as wonderful and beautiful and accomplished as you. And I, it, triggers me into almost this like zooming out out of body experience. And it reminds me of um, an ongoing conversation that I had with my advisor in grad school. So I went to grad school for women's and gender studies. And my advisor used to try to drill into me this concept of motherhood as experience versus motherhood as the institution. This cultural construct of like what motherhood is supposed to feel like people actually telling you how to feel, but really that is the one rare space where we allow people to tell us how to feel. Like, I, I don't know how people manage both like kids and relation, the, these things like because of external relationships just feel so like challenging to balance. And so I look at women like you, like, oh my God, you are, you must have superpowers. And I hear you talk about this and I'm like, your best self, like, fuck that. I had a moment in a yoga class this week where someone asked me about vulnerability. I'm like, I'm a woman who was born in 1980. I have a very different view on vulnerability from Brene Brown because I don't have a husband. I can't afford to even like step one toe in the TMI zone at any time without my vulnerabilities being used against me. That's what you, when you are a, a single mom, you're already looking at like, Hey, wait, I'm already making like 70 some cents on the dollar. <laughs> um, I'm already trying to buy like four sets of razors and shampoo and designer clothes on one lady's income. Like, <laughs> you know, like certain things just don't make any sense to me. And so to hear you talking about, like, I know I'm not my best self. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're a fucking inspiration. Like you are a best self. You're holding your marriage down. You're able to articularly communicate to your husband still in a non-verbally abusive way. Like, isn't that the first to go? You're still, you're, <laughs> you're not like drinking in front of your kids. You're not like, you can still manage. I I mean, I'm wearing sweatpants on the bottom, but it, like, like you could still manage to like pull yourself together for a pot. Like, what makes you so convinced that this isn't your best self right now? Like, no, maybe it's not like a bag of bullshit. We were fed to believe our lives were supposed to be. And if we didn't get there, we were failing. But like, man, I would say you're killing it. Well, maybe I needed that today. Thank you. No, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean, look at <laughs> just why do we just think anything should be any different than we are? Why do we think that? Because we're alive at this moment in time that everything is so much more important than or worse than it ever was. Like, Yeah. You know, maybe it's because it's like sometimes I feel like I spend a great deal of time waiting for the next thing to happen, you know, like, well, once I get that laundry done, then I might be freed up to try that next thing that I need to do. You know, when, when the to-do list feels endless, you never feel like quite accomplished with yourself. You never feel like, I don't know. It's like you lack that perspective of like, what did I do today that I'm proud of or grateful for, or feel at peace in, you know what I mean? When, when you always look at, what's left to do because there's always the left to do 
Okay. I mean this with all due respect. Okay. And I think you are the perfect person to tease this out with okay. because I think it, <laughs> I've got to get up and walk for this one. <laughs> I, I think this is what women really like. I hope we can talk more about, I have this very, very, very dear friend, Casey, who I feel like three years ago, she said exactly to me what you just said. And I just want to tell you, like, maybe this makes me a piece of shit, but like, I don't see my life that way. You really clearly equivocate your value with your ability to produce and like create measurable outcomes and philosophically. And I mean this with no disrespect. This is just my worldview. Like to me, that's more of a reflection of like an industrial society that's obsessed with outputs than it is an authentic reflection of like your value as a human woman. Like you and I have never really had a conversation never. before, but I feel like you're the kind of woman who would be one of the first supportive friends to send me a text that would say, Jennifer, just don't forget, like you are enough. Yeah. Do you feel that way about me? Just talking to me now. Like, wouldn't you just look at me and be like, Oh my God, girl, you are yes. enough. Yeah. Well, why aren't you enough? <laughs> I don't know. You are enough. Like your output doesn't add any value to who you are. I love the phrase like expectations are predetermined resentments. And so to me, I listen to your to-do list and I'm like, (laughs) oh girl, like, why do you think you have to be so hard on yourself? Don't you know that it's enough to just like give your kids a hug and (laughs) like, like, just keep doing what you're doing. Like, I don't know that all those other things add any sort of like intrinsic value. And the cheapskate in me is like, hey, if it puts more money in your bank account, definitely put it on your to-do list. (laughs) But but, um, Wayne Dyer always said, like, don't fall into that trap, that capitalist trap of like always striving, never arriving. Like, who are you to not enjoy your life? Right. I feel that way. Like this year, especially, it's just been like, okay, apparently the universe has literally forced me to sit my ass down and stop. And so like, who am I to not enjoy my life? What is yeah. What does that mean now? You're really valuable and you're really successful and you're really like doing your thing. Like you will not continue with that kind of momentum if you equate your value with your to-do list. Right. <laughs> it's a little Enneagram three, you know what I mean? Where oh, okay. a little, okay, I'm a little bit of a three <laughs> uh, where that's very much like where you, you put your value on your productivity. But I think, and honestly, I don't know if, if you've ever listened to this podcast before, but the past, however many episodes have been about women discovering these like pivot points in their lives where they go out and do the thing that they've always wanted to do. And I, so I think the messaging that I've been feeding myself is when are you going to do that thing that you're supposed to be striving to do? And when are you going to become the creative, you know, person that you always wanted to be, you know what I mean? Cause let's face it. There is always the message of the hustle, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling like the, the pull towards the hustle right now. <laughs> okay. So I have so many things to say about this. I'll start with like my funny quippy thing about the hustle, right? Okay. The hustle's real. <laughs> have you seen the movie Swingers? No, I haven't. You should probably like have martinis or whiskey or something while you're watching it too, just an FYI. But in this movie, it's like these guys are such hustlers and so full of themselves and false bravado that everything is like, yeah, baby. Yeah. They're like, Hey, baby. it's like the boys call each other baby. <laughs> right. And so I just think like, yeah, you want to hustle, but you gotta like not do it the way men did it. Are you going to do it your own way? Or are you going to do it like the, with all due respect, like the old white guy way. Like, no, that's not, I don't think that's appropriate when you have children to try to hustle like that. It's like, it's gotta be more in a like hustle, smart, not hard. (laughs) No, I appreciate the perspective because, you know, just so much of it is, is deciding 
deciding who you want to be for your kids, when you're going to be around for them. And like you said, you said you specifically made decisions that affected how you're around your kids and how you're present with them. You know what I mean? And jobs, being a working mom makes, makes you ask yourself those questions. It does. And it's funny because again, I didn't mean to become a mom as young as I did. And I remember being like 21 years old and I, I worked for this company in Milwaukee for 11 years. And I did, I just had like the greatest bosses over the years, like just wonderful people. And I had this one boss who had two small children at the home at, at home. And like, he would tell me all the time. He's like, Jennifer, I'm telling you, don't do what other women are doing. Have your kids now raise them during this and then have your career uninterrupted, but trying to do this thing where you do your career and then you interrupt it with kids. And he's like, it doesn't work. I'm telling you, it doesn't work. And he was saying this to me back in 2001. And so, no, it's not why I had children when I did, but it makes me, he was also the guy who said, Hey, <laughs> when you have kids, don't buy a vehicle, <laughs> lease a minivan, let your kids trash it for three years and give it back. <laughs> I will say that's exactly what we do. So <laughs> sage advice, right? So this, this man was sort of a genius, right? And so I think about that sometimes like, oh, that's, that's what I did. And like, after I had my second daughter, I, I did, I went by necessity. My ex-husband was unemployed at the time. I went back to work um, four weeks later and worked and worked and took a bigger job. And we had two kids in daycare then. And I lasted 10 months. And it was one of those nights where we were like sitting at a restaurant at 630 with two crying toddlers on like a stupid Tuesday night. So, you know, you're not even at the end of it. He's still like three more days to go. And I looked at him and I'm like, I think I know what I can do. So I can be the one raising our kids and I can still net the same amount of money. And I did. And I, I made a whole new, I, I went back to the company that I worked for in college and I stayed home with my girls Monday through Thursday and worked nights and weekends. And it wasn't easy. It was, it was a blow to my ego. You know, it's not why I went to college for sure. And um, I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the money I made. I've loved being home with my kids. I liked my snotty gym membership with the childcare. <laughs> And clearly that's no way to maintain a marriage. We ended up divorced. Like that's so yeah, isn't it just a series of trade-offs at, at that point? And there's no, but no I so I kind of maintained that sort of like schedule and priority, I guess, until Libby went to kindergarten. So um we moved to Iowa from Milwaukee halfway through 2012. And there were a couple of things that I didn't know about Iowa when we moved here. One of them was that back in the day, you guys used to start school in early August. We moved here in late August. I didn't even know school had already started. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I thought I had to Labor Day to figure this out. <laughs> it was a state law in Wisconsin at the time that nobody started school before Labor Day. So there was like... Yeah, is there was that big shocker. And then um like local culture, I guess. Um in Milwaukee, every kid was in school at the age of three. Everyone, everyone to school at three. There were preschool pro like and you had choices. You had choices between part-time and full-time and like, but every child like there was had start programs, there were Waldorf schools, Montessori schools, Christian schools. Jewish day schools, Riverside University school, like there were, but every child was in school at three. And I moved here with a three-year-old expecting to be able to enroll her in school. And it was like, oh no, honey, you can't have a career for two more years. <laughs> and I had spent her whole life thinking like that was the moment I was going to go back to work. And I mean, it worked out, but um, sure. I'll never forget on her first day of kindergarten, I didn't cry. I literally skipped out of there and patted myself on the back. And I was like, yeah, that's why I put, that's why I did this because there's, it appears there's still plenty of time to go work now. And here she is in fifth grade now. And I still go to work every day. And <laughs> that's where it's being authentic. Like just accepting that with kids, things are going to change frequently. So be authentic about like the needs of your family and where I've gone wrong. I can say all of this, but I think it's important for me to be honest about the whole picture. What I sacrificed was really looking out for my financial well-being 
and my financial future along the way. Like Susie Orman would be totally ashamed of me. And like, you know, I even, my psychiatrist sister, I remember like back in 2009, she tried getting me to start listening to Susie Orman tapes and things like that. Like, and so. I love it. Oh, I know I said tapes, but what? But they were you, know, you listen to them in your car. You get them from the library yeah. and you listen to them in your car. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I just said that. <laughs> hey, I drove a Volkswagen Euro van at the time. <laughs> I had a cassette. Oh God, I'm so old. <laughs> I have a thousand percent confidence in my ability to make up lost time. I already am making up lost time and like it's gonna be okay. And or I'll die in 10 years and I never needed that retirement fund anyway. So, you know, jokes on who, right? <laughs> so all but this yeah. being said, I mean, what do you advise your girls to do? You know what I mean? Do you think they should do the family first thing career later? Or, you know, cause I believe, I believe I was told my whole life, you know, that who cares about husbands? Who cares about kids? I mean, you are, you are made for more, you know what I mean? And I didn't have my first kid till I was 31. And I feel like that's what I was ready for. You know what I mean? I wasn't ready to have a kid before 31, but you know, those are two different choices, no doubt. Well, and I want to make it clear, like I wasn't ready to have children when I had children. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's something that I've honestly like fantasized about before. Like, God, what would that feel like to get to that point in life where you were like, oh, I am ready to procreate now. (laughs) Well, it feels like, it feels like I am ready to procreate now. And then your body goes, ha ha, we're not good at this. That's what it feels. You know what I mean? No. Do you know, that's what, that's what I studied in grad school. That's what brought me back to grad school for women's studies was infertility. Here I was this accidental mom. No, this is, I can't even make this up. That's why I shouldn't have done it. It was a waste of money, like, or whatever. (laughs) But no, when I was 28 years old, I went back to grad school for women's studies because I had these two small kids and my career. And I was looking at my sister-in-law who has since passed away, but she was really like the epitome of like, who should have been a mother. Okay. (sighs) She was so invested in her career and just like a lover of animals. And she was so good to my girls and just like, uh, auntie Amy. And like, she was like, she was born to be a mother. And then like, she just couldn't. And it was so devastating to watch. And then watching her and watching a sister and then watching three friends, like three close friends all go through it all at the same time. I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, but like, this doesn't make sense because I'm the idiot who shouldn't have been trusted with children this young. These ladies played by all the rules, all the rules. They are the people our society says they want to have children. And yet what a universal bitch slap that they can't have kids. Like, what do the feminists have to say about this? I know this isn't right. And I know people don't think there's a role for feminism in such a thing. But no, I want to know what the feminists have to say about it. And so I did like that's what I studied. And like there's this institute, the Motherhood Institute of Research and um, Productivity, Reproduction sorry, not productivity, reproduction out of Australia. And they do like global research. And so I did, I did like a global analysis on infertility treatments and really found that like, no, this is where like personal is political, political is personal. And when we talk about things like where I get concerned, like, oh, honey, like your worth is not tied to your ability to produce output because when it comes to infertility treatments, if you're operating under profit-driven healthcare, profit is the motive, not a live birth. Nobody really cares if you get pregnant, if you carry that pregnancy to full term, and if you have the baby and the baby lives past three years. These are all like These are four major milestones, I'm sure, as you've heard, (laughs) in infertility treat infertility. It's not infertility. It's involuntary childlessness. It's not infertility. Infertility, like not fertile. And so then like, let's go back to the yoga. You think about like consciousness and thoughts become words, words become things. And so like if you and your husband are sitting there for three years thinking we're infertile, we're infertile, we're infertile, like 
how does that help anything? It's not infertility, it's involuntary childlessness. And we don't know all the reasons or the whys, and we don't have enough tools to measure it. But based on my research, you're really not best off treating your involuntary childlessness through profit-driven healthcare. You're best off looking at a culture that actually cares about live birth outcomes, no matter what age you are. And so if you look at places like different cultures in Africa and Egypt, where if you're a female and you don't have a baby at the age of 23, you are too at the witch doctor. They value fertility so much. So these are the people who know how to treat involuntary childlessness, not the profit-driven people. And so that's where like... <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know how to make a career out of it or whatever else, but I know for sure, like my passion in life is just like help women understand. They're just like so much more valuable and powerful than what our culture has led them to believe. You've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> I think it's, uh, no, I just think it's interesting that I can sit here and have an hour long conversation with someone I've never met before never spoken to, never seen your face, never heard your voice. And here we are two women like breaking down each other's thought processes right now. Yeah. I think it's, well, cool. it's pretty non-threatening, right? Because we came at this like, Hey, I respect you. You respect me. And so like respect yeah. was there. And so it comes from a good place. Yeah. Like, I think you're beautiful and amazing and wonderful. And I would only say this to elevate you. I would never say this to tear you down or <laughs> yeah. All my notes are about yoga. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw those away for now. Cause I think we no, no, no rapid fire. We can rapid fire. And then <laughs> what do you think really got you into yoga and doing it as intensively as you do and studying it? Once I latched on to the practice for myself, it took me two years to stay for Shavasana. I was practicing just at my gym. My kickboxing instructor was also my yoga instructor. She told me to do it so I could prevent injury. And being the young mom with two kids and having a two-hour time limit at the gym on my free childcare, <laughs> I would pop up before Shavasana and be like, I'm getting in the shower, suckers. I would go take my 10-minute shower in peace, go pick up my kids and head home. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It didn't occur to me to stay for that long, boring part of the, like, I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. And so like, I think the yoga practice itself had to do the work on me before my brain and my mind were even ready to go there. Admittedly, um, after I had my second daughter, I was close to 300 pounds. And so I went through uh, a period of extreme weight loss. I lost over 120 pounds. Wow during that time in my life and have managed to keep like a hundred of it off. <laughs> when I started staying for Shavasana and I started feeling like, honestly, the mental and um, psychological benefits of it, I had this aha moment one day where I was like, wait, if I could teach this to my kids, would it mean they would suffer less than I did? And that was it. So my 200 hour was very specific to working with children, teens, and families. I did it with a group out of Chicago called um, Global Family Yoga. Mira Binzen is my teacher. We're still dear friends and she's amazing. It's very rooted in like Shivananda Yoga and Rod Stryker's Para Yoga lineage, a lot of just classical influence. I didn't go to this to learn how to do like puppet shows of yoga. This is like, this is a child's anatomy. These are their senses. So at the time I was in grad school too, and I started teaching yoga to pregnant teens and very affluent teens. Like I had these two very extreme different yeah. groups up in Milwaukee that I was working with. And I realized like, gosh, if I really want to work with kids, I need to be yogic and inclusive and non-judgmental and non-violent. And I went on to learn more about therapeutic yoga for children and just understanding like, how do you welcome a child into your class who might be on the autism spectrum or have some sensory challenges or pervasive developmental difficulties or even like physical limitations? Like, yeah, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't think it's appropriate for me to say, oh, your child has a diagnosis. I don't think he can come to yoga. Right. I don't think she, this is right for her. Like that's not yoga. That's not appropriate. So that really is what like drove the next level. And then uh, moving to the quad cities, I 
had a very fortunate experience of becoming an executive director of a yoga-based nonprofit. And they sent me through a lot of like high level, awesome neuroscience training and like yoga for PTSD. And so from there, like that's the kind of stuff that makes me hooked. I enjoy taking hot yoga classes. I just have so much respect for like all the people that I teach and practice amongst because there's something for everybody. And I think we do all really come at it from different angles. Yeah. And I think I was interested in talking to you about yoga from, you know, from seeing that Facebook post detailing, you know, your experience in it, because yoga feels very aspirational, you know, Mm -hmm. from a physical level, of course, but to me, it's more on a mental level that it's aspirational because you have to, I don't know, it's not just showing up and going through some, you know, some weightlifting moves. It's like you're showing up to, to do some, do some work for an hour. My criticism of yoga in the West, I guess, is that like there is so much cultural appropriation and there is so much of a fitness spin on it that um, for some reason, people sort of took like the esoteric and meditative parts of it and decided that it was appropriate to start life coaching during yoga classes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm laughing at myself because like. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. Sometimes I'm an example and sometimes I'm a warning. Like, trust me, you do not want me life coaching you during a yoga class. We need these human bodies to be able to self-regulate. And so, but I think when you're moving your body like that, when you're in a physical condition like that, especially a hot yoga class, I don't think it's good for the body. If you're taking in mental information that may not be constructive or written by a licensed professional. (laughs) So I think that's, that's where the like caveat emptor comes in. I only know what I know. I can't, I am definitely not a guru. I'm not the most knowledgeable person on anything, but I've been told I teach a pretty good yoga class. So I try to just do it in a socially responsible way. Well, I'll have to check one out sometime. Where can people find you to take one of your classes? Um, One Tree Hot Yoga in Davenport on 53rd Street. We're still teaching classes there. We've managed to do so very safely and responsibly. And I just can't say enough about our owner. She's made it possible for people to be able to do something that keeps them sane. And every time we feel a push toward like airing on the side of caution, it's like somehow we just get shown that the right thing to do is keep holding space for people. So that's a good place to find me, One Tree Hot Yoga. In the summers, I really like teaching their um, yoga in the park, and I do it every single time that I can at Vanderveer Park. Yeah. I've been reassured by the LeClaire Public Library that as soon as we can start doing this again, we're going to do it. And yeah, that one's really great. And I think um, we see where it's growing and where we can grow spaces. And so I really love that one because that's the all ages one. Um, But then I also, before I moved away from Milwaukee, I helped start a nonprofit called Hometown Yogis. And I have a group of soul sisters up in Milwaukee. We still have this nonprofit going and, um, it's a really smart, intelligent model of leveraging like-mindedness for good. We started this back in um, 2010. We were kind of looking at like, like the yoga industry as a whole and like the market research around who's practicing yoga. And we realized that the people who are practicing yoga or who were at the time, um, the demographics really uh, mimicked the golf industry. And it was growing away from being female dominated into male dominated. And so we kind of got together and we're like, hey, if we don't leverage these people's like education and income and like mindedness for good, what if like the yoga capitalists of the world like start to appropriate on that? We created at first, it was called the Milwaukee Yoga Teachers Group, and it was like a hub for all of the teachers in the area. And then we went through this whole like marketing thing and created a board and got our 501c3 status and rebranded ourselves as hometown yogis. And so our events are a major part of our brand. We have a very consistent program at the Milwaukee Art Museum and with the Milwaukee County Parks Department. We also do like yoga on the green, um, like music festivals where the yoga people at Summerfest and everything we do is donation based. And then we just, and yogis are so generous. You'd be 
amazed what people donate. We've never had less than 230 people show up at our art museum classes and the average donation is $35. Yeah. Wow. So we take all of that money and we give it back twice a year at micro grants to yoga instructors who want to launch programs in the community. And so most of the funding tends to go toward, you know, rehab facilities, you know, people who want to do um, yoga programs at drug treatment facilities, prisons, um, the Milwaukee public schools. Um, and it's interesting because with that, I don't know if you know this, but in Davenport and Rock Island, um, they both recently had former... Um, Milwaukee superintendents there so it was so cool to work with them again like hey want to do this again yeah (laughs) and so we did we were able to get some more programming going and but yeah so long and short of it I would say also keep an eye on hometown yogis because I'm always active with that and when we come out of this pandemic I think we'll we'll come out swinging with some pretty great events in the midwest so Well, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate the past hour and 15 minutes that you spent with me. (laughs) No, I just, I love, I love your perspective and I love your honesty. And I think um, raising young women with honesty is so important. It's not always easy, but they deserve it. And we'll see, right? Like I'm just doing the best I can right now. We don't know how this is going to turn out yet. (laughs) (laughs) So don't take my word for it. My sincere thanks to Jennifer for being part of this conversation and to you for um, listening to two women just exploring life together and coming from two different places and for keeping an open mind to different people's experiences. So thank you for listening to this episode of On a Mother Level. I hope that you found something that felt relatable to you because that's what this podcast is all about. When it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.